Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you will help us to see the importance of total dependence upon you. Thank you for the scriptures that give us examples, both positive examples and negative examples, what happens when we pray in faith and what happens when we don't. And help us to see this morning, Lord, from the holy word of God, how our lives need to be directed in such a way that we are walking with you in simple, humble obedience and in every difficult situation, crying out to you for help. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope it's not too simplistic to think that we can divide all of humanity into these three categories. The bullies, the brave, and the cowards. <laughs> I'm talking about fighting. And when you talk about that first category, the bullies, those are the belligerent individuals who like to stir up a fight. If there's not a fight, they're not happy. So they'll create one. This is that member of your family who at Thanksgiving dinner has to provoke everyone else until there's a family feud because they're bullies and belligerent. The brave are those who don't want to fight, but when principle is involved or the safety of loved ones, they'll fight. They'll take their stand. They'll do what's right at loss of their own life to provide freedom and life for others. We'll call these people the brave, the courageous. And then you've got the spineless, the cowards. They don't like to fight. And I'm not talking about pessimism or about pacifism here. I'm, I'm talking about people who no matter what the situation just don't team, seem to take a stand they not only won't fight, they run from every fight. It's interesting to note that in a spiritual context, we find ourselves as Christians faced with fighting. We sometimes in our Christian circles are the belligerent ones who cause church fights. And how sad is that? We should be those who are brave enough to stand for what is true and spiritually fight for what is right so that we in our own lives will be walking at peace with God. But many believers have no spine. Many believers hate the thought of conflict so much they've defined the Christian life as just an easy life of following God in love and there's nothing negative, nothing difficult about it. That, my friend, is an unbiblical picture of Christianity. And I'm not one who likes to fight. And yet when I read my Bible, I'm commanded to put on the armor of God. And I'm commanded to take a stand against the evil one. And I'm even commanded to put out some blows and make some advances for the kingdom of God's sake. There's war analogies, both in the Old and in the New Testament, although they're significantly different. But it gives us a flavor of what the Christian life 
should be like. I find it interesting that many of our churches no longer will sing Onward Christian Soldiers or Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus or Am I a Soldier of the Cross? And they point back to those days when the church, and I use that in its broadest possible definition, the church took up the sword and tried to advance Christianity in the Crusades. Defeating Islam in the name of Christ with the sword. That didn't work so good. And now we think, well, let's not talk about warlike stuff when we talk about Christianity and we want some type of Christianity purged of any type of challenge and conflict. But that's not what I find in my Bible. So where is the balance? What is our role in a Christian war? What kind of fighting do we need to get involved with? What is the good fight of faith? Well, there's an Old Testament passage that I think will help us. An Old Testament passage that comes out of the life of Moses, and it's Exodus chapter 17. I want you to turn there. Exodus chapter 17. In verse 8, we've got the bullies and we've got the brave. The good guys and the bad guys. Verse 8, the Amalekites. Exodus 17, verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. A quick look at a map gives us a little orientation of where we've been in our study of the life of Moses and in the exodus of the people of God coming out of Egypt. They came from Ramesses and traveled south. We don't know exactly where they crossed the Red Sea, but we suggested the northern part of the Gulf of Suez. And when they got into the wilderness of Shur, they began to travel for three days without water. They finally came to Marah, but the water was bitter. And God told Moses to throw a stick of wood in, and the bitter became sweet. Then they went from Marah to Elam, where there were springs of water, and the nation was refreshed. From there, they traveled down to the wilderness of Sin, the desert of Sin. That's when God gave manna from heaven. Exodus chapter 16. So they needed water and God provided. They needed meat and God provided. And when you get into chapter 17, they've now come to Rephidim. We don't know exactly where it is, but it's closer to Mount Sinai. And again, they have a water problem. And Moses strikes the rock with his rod and water comes out. By the way, remember, this is what God told Moses to do. And it was the right thing to do. In Exodus 17, it'll be the wrong thing to do in Numbers 20 when Moses strikes the rock to get water. So God's providing for their every need. And now an enemy attacks them. What we have in this section of Scripture is the fact that the Lord is the one who is going to fight our battles for us, but we must be engaged too. There is a spiritual war going on. It's not a physical war. And the physical war that Israel's involved with gives us a lot of application to our own spiritual battles that we face under the new covenant. I'm bold enough to think that if the Apostle Paul saw spiritual analogies from the manna and from crossing the Red Sea and being baptized into Moses and eating, drinking from the same rock that was Christ, if all of that he saw 
analogous to our Christian life, then I think we can see something here for us today in our own spiritual battle. The battle is the Lord's. First of all, I would say something about the location. They were there at this location according to the will of God. That's what we said last week. The lack of water, the desert trip, the difficulties they faced, this is all the will of God. I went back in my notes years and years ago when I had preached on some portion here in Exodus and I talked about their wilderness wandering and I realized I didn't understand what the scripture was saying because they're not wandering in the wilderness yet. They are journeying in the wilderness at the command of God. They're exactly where God wants them to be. The wandering is because of disobedience. And when you obey God, you're going to have difficult times of no water and no food. And you're going to cry out for his help. And you're also going to engage the enemy in battle. Notice the opposition, the Amalekites, verse 8. The Amalekites, this is a nasty group of people. Uh, they're a marauding, marauding nomadic people. Might even be a collection of tribes in that particular area. We're, we're told that Amalek actually came from Esau. Genesis chapter 35 tells us that. He's of the line of the profane one, not the line of the holy. He's from Esau, not from Jacob. The Bible tells us he was the first of nations, according to Numbers 24. And I think that probably refers to the first nation to war against Israel. One of the early nations. In fact, the name Amalek means warlike. And they were coming into this desert region where there's not much water and there's not much vegetation. And they wanted to have the land for themselves. And now Israel comes in two million strong with its livestock and its need for water and vegetation. And there's a conflict. There's a battle. The opposition, in a vicious way, attacks the people of God. And in fact, they're going to attack the people of God throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And Amalek becomes that symbol, that image of the enemies of the people of God that are constantly fighting and warring against us. Let me tell you who our enemies are. Paul says in Ephesians 6, it's not flesh and blood, right? And yet how often we do battle with flesh and blood. We think our enemies are people. That's not your enemy. Our enemies are the world and the flesh and the devil. And I think Amalek refers to these enemies of our soul. Maybe most likely the analogy is with the flesh. You see, the world, and I'm not talking about the people in it. I'm talking about the godless system that dominates planet Earth. This philosophy, anti-God philosophy, is trying to squeeze you into its mold to make you think like it thinks because it hates anyone who's a maverick. It hates anyone who is different. The world wants everyone to be like it, like the world. And the world does battle against the Christian. The devil, like a wounded lion, 
prowling about, seeking whom he may devour. The devil's plan for you is to destroy you. He wants to rip you away from Christ if he could. He wants to keep you from getting to Christ if you've never trusted him. The devil wants to destroy you. And the flesh. Well, the flesh is that remaining corruption still in the believer. Those who aren't Christians, they're controlled by the flesh. And I'm not referring to the body. I'm referring to that sin within. Christians, even though we're new natures in Christ, even the old, the old man has been crucified, Paul says, but don't let that flesh, don't let that old nature reign in your body. It still has that potential. And you've got to reckon it dead. Colossians chapter 3 says you have to kill the deeds of the body. These carnal acts, these passions that want to take control of us. You've got to go on an all-out war against evil desires within your soul. And this, my friend, is the good fight of faith. Fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 just for a moment. Because the Apostle Paul mentions all three of these enemies in a brief paragraph. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, We have been made alive even though we once were dead in trespasses and sins. God has saved us. He's made us alive. And we learn later in the chapter it's by grace through faith. Not of ourselves. Salvation is a gift of God. It's not the result of our works and no one can boast. But then he says in verse 2 of Ephesians 2, you once walked according to the course of this world. There's enemy number one. The world trying to squeeze you into its philosophy, into its course, into its way of life. You once were controlled by the prince of the power of the air. That's the God of this world. That's the devil. He's the one who with his spirit works in the children of disobedience. He motivates disobedience to the clear teaching of scripture verse 3 says we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh fulfilling the desires of our old sinful nature and there's the third enemy the world the flesh and the devil and we are in a battle You see, we can't be cowards. We can't be spineless. We can't say the Christian life is just an easy life where there is no battle. No, we've got to take up the weapons of our warfare, which are not carnal. And we must pull down the strongholds that exist that the devil has raised up. We must rip out the control that he has in our own lives with the passion within. So we've got an enemy above us the prince of the power of the air. We've got an enemy around us, the world, trying to squeeze us into its mold. And we've got an enemy within us called the flesh. I'd say the cards are stacked against us. And we're in trouble. By the way, if you don't know that there's a war going on, you're already defeated. If you're not daily doing battle, the devil's got a greater control of you than what you would like to admit. And so the Amalekites are going to engage us in the battle. By the way, Moses tells us a little bit about how the opposition works. This is Deuteronomy 25. Just before they go into the Holy Land, into the land of Canaan, Moses says, I want you to remember the Amalekites. Remember what they did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt? He said, when you were weary and worn out, get that, 
They've been on the road now for weeks, and they're weary and worn out, haven't had enough to drink. Their diet's been the same ever since the Lord gave them the quail and the manna. When you were on your journey, the Amalekites cut off all who were lagging behind. In other words, in two million people coming out of Egypt, you've got a bit of a drawn-out group of people. They, they end up you know, walking at a different pace, and the leaders are out front, and then some are in the middle. But the people who are bringing up the rear are often the weak, the sickly, the old, and maybe mothers with children and people with burdens. And the Amalekites come and attack Israel at its most vulnerable point and defeat them which is a very cowardly thing to do. And God says, never forget what they did. And that's one reason why I'm going to put them under a curse forever. Because that's what he says in verse 19 of Deuteronomy 25. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies and the land that he's giving you to possess as your inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek. Blot it out from under heaven. Let it not be named or remembered among you. And then he adds these words, don't forget this. So that's one of the last commands that Moses gives the people of God before they go into the promised land and he passes away and goes into the presence of God. I tell you, the opponents, the opposition, the adversaries that you and I face in the spiritual realm are powerful. And we cannot get the victory without help from above. So let's go to the confrontation. Exodus 17, verse 9. Moses says to Joshua. By the way, first time Joshua is mentioned, he'll be mentioned about 20 times or 200 times in the Bible. He becomes Moses' assistant, actually takes over as a leader of the nation of Israel. He was born in Egypt and apparently had some military training. By the way, when Israel came out of Egypt... We're told in Exodus 13, 18, they came out armed for battle. I find that an interesting phrase. God said, I'm not going to lead you the northern route right into the land of the Philistines because you might be engaged in war and want to quit and go home. But still they were ready for battle. They'd put uh, put together a group of people, a little army, ready to fight anyone who would attack them. And now they've been weeks on the road and they haven't had a battle and... Perhaps their guard is down because Moses says, I want you to choose some men and go out and fight. The group that was armed to battle, apparently they weren't ready now. And you don't have much time, so put them together. What a ragtag group that must have been. You know, you've seen documentaries of the Revolutionary War when Washington got the American troops together and they were in sad shape. They couldn't march Some were farmers, and they couldn't be controlled, and everyone was independent, you know, and they had their own guns, and they'd leave when they wanted to. It was a mess. And I'm not sure Joshua had the strongest army, but he put the group together. And uh, Moses said, here's my strategy. You go out and fight, and I will go up on the mountain and stand. You fight, I'll stand. Oh, and by the way... I'll have the staff of God in my hand. That staff that was turned into a snake, that staff that made the waters of the Nile blood red, 
The staff that brought the lice down in a plague, the staff that parted the waters of the Red Sea, the staff that brought water from the rock, representative of God being with Moses and with the people of God. Moses says, I'll take that staff. So verse 10 says, Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered him to do. And Moses, 81 years old, Aaron, 84 years old, and her, too old to give us his age. Actually, I don't know how old he is, but I'm just guessing he's one of the old guys. You know, he's not down there fighting with the younger guys, so he's with the older guys up on the hill watching. Went up to the top of the hill. They weren't just watching, though. They had a viewpoint so that they could see the valley below. They could see the conflict as it would ebb and flow. But they were there to do some business. For the scripture says, as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites prevailed. They were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Now some people think that this is just a military, kind of a military command. Hand goes up to advance. Hand goes down to retreat. And so Moses is telling people, go forward, and then time to come back. But that doesn't fit with what the text says. His hands lowered because he was weary. The hands held up refer to what? Has to be total dependence upon God. Prayer. Hands down means I've lost my focus and I've lost my dependence upon God. Staff up, I'm looking to God to intervene. Staff down, apparently I'm not looking to God anymore. When he lowered his hands, the enemies prevailed. (laughs) That sounds exactly like the spiritual conflict that you and I are in against the world, the flesh, and the devil, when we are praying and walking according to the will of God, there is progress. And when we don't pray, there is retreat and defeat. Now Moses, being an old guy, verse 12, his hands got tired. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. I don't care if you're 81 years old or not. To stand for hours with your hands uplifted is a very difficult thing to do. And then to hold something even as light as a stick makes it doubly difficult. And so he needed help. Verse 13, so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the edge of the sword. I like the old King James. Joshua discomfited the Amalekite army with the edge of the sword. Yeah, it's rather uncomfortable to get a sword thrust into the side. And they won the day. What is the secret to victory? Let me mention four things. Joshua fighting... Moses praying, others helping, God intervening. Now this is an amazing combination of our work and God's work. Human activity fighting and God's power unleashed on our behalf. 
When you go back to the Red Sea situation, remember the people of Israel were boxed in. They had the Red Sea here and Pharaoh's armies are coming in. A mountain range to the north, wasteless desert to the south, nowhere to go. And they cried out to God. And, and God said to Moses, I want you to tell the people of God, stand still and watch me deliver them. And Exodus 14, 14 says this, For the Lord will fight for you. And even though Israel was armed, they were not engaged in the battle. They just trusted God and God delivered them. Sometimes God delivers us in a supernatural way without what appears to be any human intervention. But now, he says, I want you to go down and fight So dependent on this victory is the faithfulness of God's people in obeying the command to be active, to fight. You and I have to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have to be aggressive. We have to take our stand. We have to go forward and not lag behind. Am I a soldier of the cross? A fowler of the Lamb? Should I blush to own his cause? Blush to speak his name? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me unto God? My friend, you and I are soldiers of the cross. And like it or not, we need to go forward and fight. To stem the tide of wickedness. And to do battle with our own corruption within. That's the picture of the Christian life. The believer's battle with sin is constant. It's difficult, just like this war was. But it's not just us fighting. It's us praying. Joshua was fighting and Moses was praying. While the hands were lifted up, they won. When the hands went down, they lost. God doesn't need our help, but he commands us to engage. He doesn't need to use human Uh, mediators and yet he does prophets and preachers men to inscribe his word he could have spoken through angels but he he has chosen not to later on he'll do battle against the Assyrians and the angel of the Lord will wipe out 185,000 of Sennacherib's hosts in a night a quick evening work it's not hard for God But he says, no, I want you to fight. That shows me you're trusting me. I've commanded you to fight. Read Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God so that you might be protected against the onslaughts of the evil one and take up all prayer and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and do battle with the enemy. You don't fight against flesh and blood, but my friend, you do fight against the spiritual powers and the spiritual battle you need to be engaged with. Our work and his work. But sometimes we need the help of others. That's third. That's where Aaron and her come in. You know, the best thing you can do for your pastors is really pray for them. We need Sunday school teachers. We need people to help do the battle, to do the work. But we need prayer warriors. And sometimes when we get older in age, we think, well, I can't teach anymore, and I don't have the energy or the strength to do this, that, or the other. You can climb the hill and pray. And lift up our hands when they get tired, when we are weary, and we are tempted to quit. 
As George Whitfield said, I don't get weary of the work, but I get weary in the work. It's good work, but it's tiresome. And we need to pull together. That's why you need prayer uh, helpers. You need a, a group of people who support you in prayer just in your own Christian life. Who's praying for you? Who have you enlisted to be on your prayer team? And then finally, it's really all of God. But the one who wins the battle is the one who's chosen how we should fight. The scripture tells us, verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, I want you to write this on a scroll. Interesting comment about the early writing of the ancients. Write it on a scroll as something to be remembered and and make sure Joshua hears about it because I'm going to completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses built an altar, altar and he called it the Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nissi. Why? Because we held up our hands to the throne of the Lord and he gave us victory. And also because the Lord said he's going to be at war with the Amalekites forever. Notice the determination here. The determination of God's curse upon the people of God. We will always do battle with the flesh, with the devil, with the world. There's no truce. But the one who wins the battle for us is the Lord. The Lord is my banner. What's a banner? It probably refers to a piece of, piece of cloth or fabric laced to a pole and lifted up. The banner, the flag represents a cause. Sometimes we put up flags to honor a person. Sometimes a flag will show a regiment. And the flag goes into the battle first. The person holding the colors advances first. And we are to be under the flag of God, fighting for His colors, for His name, under His power. The flag honors a person. When a person of note has died, the flag is lowered. We have a flag that represents something pretty amazing in our history, American history. It was a flag that hung over Fort McHenry in Baltimore. And it was being attacked and shelled all night. And in the morning, the flag was still there. And some guy out in a boat by the name of Francis Scott Key saw that flag still flying and he wrote the song called The Star-Spangled Banner. And it's a great banner. It represents our country. That's why I don't understand in the name of liberty how we can say that that flag should be defiled. But this flag represents Jehovah. Jehovah's our banner. We fight under his colors, but we've dropped the colors. And we fight in our own strength. We've got to raise the colors up again and get them out front in the vanguard. There's a very great, I think, a very interesting movie and and fairly historical, The Patriot with Mel Gibson, Revolutionary War. 
And in that last battle, the one holding the American flag is shot down. And Gibson goes and gets the flag and begins to wave this huge flag. And then he takes it up to the front. And, and the army advances. They're encouraged now with the flag. And they go forward and they win the battle. And of course, it was a historic battle. And I'm sure there are many stories of people grabbing the colors and going forward. It's time for the church to grab the colors of God and say we fight under his banner. We fight under his word. We fight according to his strategy. And it's by dependence upon him. We're going to work. We're going to think. We're going to labor. We're going to do everything we can in our power, but realize the battle is the Lord's. And there's no victory without his power. So church, may we lift up our hands in prayer that the work of God in this place will not abate, will not retreat, that will not be defeated, but we will go forward in the name of the Lord to defeat every enemy of his. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we have in Scripture these great and precious promises that tell us how we need to live and tell us how we need to trust. Sometimes, Lord, it's easy for us to swing the sword instead of to lift up the hands in prayer. But it's the edge of the sword and the uplifted staff. It's the help of Aaron and her and the power of God that give the victory. Let us learn, Lord, that the battle is not ours but yours. And yet we must engage in Jesus' name.